uh, today, this evening, we're going to do chapter 34. So um, let's go ahead and um, come before the Lord and let's, uh, let's get started. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your grace, Lord, your mercy, Father. As Sammy said, Father, just drench us with your presence, Father. Fill us, Lord. Father, just allow our ears to hear, Father, everything that you have for us, Lord. Lord, as we just look to this chapter, Father, we just pray, Father, that you speak to us. Father, just allow our minds to be clear from the thoughts of the day and the trials and the things that we're going through, Lord, and that we would just be able to be uh, completely focused on you, Lord. Thank you again for uh, loving us and caring so much about us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, again, we're going to be going through uh, Genesis chapter 34. And if you will... um, uh, go ahead and turn there. We're going to not read the entire chapter, but we're going to read it as we go, since there's a lot of uh, good stuff in the different verses that we're going to be uh, going through. But in uh, Genesis 34, you know, we come to this really awful chapter, um, the rape of Dinah. And um, we know that the Bible was not written as chapters, rather chapters uh, were added later for ease of use and for our ease of uh, understanding and, and being able to find Uh, certain passages, but we know that in this entire account, which makes up this chapter, uh, God's name is completely absent. Um, It's made even worse uh, by being the only chapter in the Bible outside the book of Esther where the name of God is not even mentioned. However, throughout the book of Esther, we see the fingerprints of God. This is not the case in Genesis chapter 34 here. In this passage, we do not see God's name or his influence, Um, this passage is filled with sin, with excess, and with godlessness, yet this story serves to warn us of the high price of compromise. And the tragedies that take place in this chapter are the result of Jacob's failure to be obedient to God's command to return to Bethel, and we see that in chapter 28, 21, 31, 3, as well as 31, 13. And that single act of compromise cost his daughter dearly and put the rest of the covenant family at risk. Now, as I was reading this chapter, the term dysfunctional family came to mind. Now, um, I decided to get a working definition by a notable source on what a dysfunctional family is. So here's what it was defined as. A dysfunctional family is a family in which conflict and misbehavior on the part of an individual family member occurs continually and regularly leading other members to accommodate such actions. That sounds like it could be any one of our families here tonight, right? I, know, I mean, I know it sounds like mine, um, but the life of the patriarchs so far have been very dysfunctional. If you remember Abraham, that wasn't a very pretty picture either, was it? There was conflict in his family between his wife Sarah and her handmaiden Hagar, and the two boys that came out of that union. There was dysfunction in the life of Isaac, their son, because Isaac had a couple of boys, Esau and Jacob. Esau was Isaac's favorite boy, and Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. And the conflict developed, and the dysfunction went on for an entire lifetime. Now we come to Jacob's family, and it's like the next generation just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And it's notable because these are the first men that God chose to form the nation of Israel. Now, I hope you're encouraged by that because we know how the story ends and how powerful and merciful of a God that we serve, right? So tonight's study, 
we could look at the chapter, and if we divide it into three sections, here's how it would look. The first, uh, verses, first uh, verses 1 through 5, is uh, the rape of Dinah. And then in the second section, uh, verses 5 through 12, that's the remuneration because of the rape. And then in the final section, verses 13 through 31, we see the retaliation by Jacob's boys. And if you recall the kind of person that Jacob is, both as a person and as a father, he was a deceiver. He was, he was a conniver. He was a very passive individual. Now remember back in chapters 29 and 30 when his wives were competing on who would have the most kids. You guys remember that? Every time one of them would get pregnant, they would say, oh, the Lord is showing me his, his favor on me. Now my husband's really going to love me more than her. And they were competing back and forth, and Jacob was probably aware of this, but was completely passive. Just sort of like, oh, whatever, you know, girls, just go ahead and handle it yourself. I mean, no, no big deal. And so we're going to see that here again tonight, that Jacob in this passage is extremely passive. Many of you guys have girls, right? I don't know about you, but I don't think you'd be passive like Jacob was. Now, Jacob was also the one who deceived his brother, stealing a blessing. He deceives Uncle Laban, then, then he goes down to Padam Aran, and then he returns, uh, as, he, as he returns back, Jacob deceives his brother again. So, you know, there's some things here that um, we're going to see that Jacob is going to not necessarily pay for, but he's going to have to give an account for why he allowed his family to, uh, to go down to, into this, uh, this moral section of, um, of the land. Now, if you remember our study last week, Jacob came to meet Esau in the previous chapter, and he was afraid of Esau. He was afraid because he was going to kill him. So what did he do? He placed his family members in front of the caravan as a shield in case Jacob decided to attack him, right? This way it gave Jacob an out. It gave him an escape to, uh, to get away. And when they finally met, Esau shows Jacob nothing but love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness and then they embrace each other, uh, each other. But the parting words of Jacob to his brother, when Esau says, come with me, my brother. And he goes, no, 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 no it's okay. You know, go ahead and go, go to Seir. Um, go back to your home. I'll come and I'll visit you later. Okay. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't even show up at Seir. And really, he had no intention of going there. Now, God made himself known to Jacob in a place that he would eventually retreat back you know, which we uh, talked about earlier called Bethel, and it meant the house of God. It was the place that God spoke to him, and he built an altar at one time to the Lord. And it was a place of intimacy and fellowship. That's where Jacob should have gone. He should have gone back, back to Bethel to meet intimately with God once again and to influence his family and say, kids, let me tell you the story of what God has done and what has happened in this place and what he has done for you and for me. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he goes to two different places. He goes to Succoth, and then, he, and then later he remembers he goes to a place, and he moves to a place called Shechem. Okay? Now, we don't know exactly why he did. He didn't want to go back, but he made some bad decisions along the way. And that's the thing with decisions. Whatever we decide to do, wherever we decide to go, those that we love, that are part of our family, um, we can put them in either a place of blessing or we can put them in grave danger. Jonah's a good example of that. He decided, 
I'm done with preaching for God. I'm definitely not going to go to Nineveh. I don't want to have any part of this. Decides to go the opposite direction. Gets on a boat. Takes a prince's cruise to Portugal. You guys remember that? And his mistake is thinking that he was alone and it is his disobedience. He thought that he was the only one that was running from God. And as soon as he gets on the boat with the other people and every crew member aboard that was there on the boat with him was in trouble just because of Jonah's disobedience. The boat almost sinks. Everybody aboard was scared to death and cried out to his own God and was mystified and perplexed that the only person aboard not praying was the very man who should have been praying, the prophet of God, Jonah. He placed everybody on board in jeopardy. As we mentioned earlier, we talked about Abraham. Abraham decided to go down to Egypt. There's a famine in the land. He placed himself, his wife, in jeopardy because he lied, saying that uh, she was his sister. Jacob decides, same thing, done with Bethel, it's time for Shechem, and there he goes. So as we get into this passage tonight, some of you men are husbands, you're leaders of your home, and you need to get back to Bethel, the house of God the place of blessing, the place God has called you to be with him, where he's number one in your life. God's looking forward to meeting with you here tonight. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do your first works over again. So remember, repent, and repeat. The three R's, not reading, writing, and arithmetic. You guys remember that in school? But the the real three R's, remember, repent, and repeat. Do those works again. And for some men, maybe tonight, God will use this chapter to get a hold of you and your own spiritual values and priorities and get you back to that place of blessing. So let's look at verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. By this time, Dinah must have been a teenager, and most biblical commentators kind of put her between the ages of 13 and maybe 16 years of age. So she's a young woman. Um, in those days, she was of marriageable age. And, um, you know, here she is. She's, she's in a new place. She's a kid. She's curious. Uh, she wants to find out who the other kids are in the neighborhood, right? And she wants to kind of see who the other girls are. She wants to hang out with them. She's a typical teenager. However, given the nature of the neighborhood, it's, it's a pagan Hivite neighborhood. And you would think at least mom or dad would say, hey, you know what? It's kind of dangerous out there. It's, you know, there's, you know, a whole lot of stuff going on. You got a bunch of brothers. Why don't you take one with you? But we don't get any indication that she, uh, she had anybody that, that chaperoned her. She went out there alone. And in verse 2, it says, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country saw her, he took her and he lay with her and he violated her. That is, he sexually assaulted her. He raped her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman. I don't know about you, but this is a little bit odd to me. He sees her. Obviously, there's lust involved. Okay. He's a very aggressive young man. He violates her. He forces her, and then he looks at her and goes, Oh, I love you. I don't know, that's a little strange to me. Anyway, so let's move on. And then it says, And spoke kindly to the young woman, so Shechem spoke to his father. 
Now, Shechem here is the son. Okay, Hamar is the father, and the town they live in is called Shechem. And so either the town was named after the boy or the boy was named after the town, but I think it was probably uh, the first one because you'll notice in verse 2, he's called the prince of the country. And so obviously he was of notoriety and he was very spoiled. He's very petulant and he was very aggressive. He was the kind of guy that, uh, you know, you would see in the playgrounds that got whatever he wanted. He was a bully. Okay. And dad kind of let him run, you know, however he want, whenever he want, with whomever he wanted. And in verse four, notice how he talks to his dad. He says, so Shechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. It's almost like caveman, you know. It's just, it's just very, um, I don't know, my, my dad was, um, was a very mild-spoken uh, man. But I would never talk to my dad, Dad, go get me this. It just, just wouldn't happen. I wouldn't end up with teeth, right? But here we see just, you know, how either it's a lack of respect or just a lack of understanding of who he's dealing with here. Um, no honor for his father. So he's, he's barking out these orders to his father. Now, clearly, Dinah has fallen in with the wrong crowd. You know, she's curious. She wants to meet the other girls in the neighborhood. She falls in with this wrong crowd, and on her first date with Prince Charming, he rapes her. And then he says, I love you, and tells his dad I love her. Okay? I don't know. Now, there's a typical pattern for young men in the world. It's not always this way, but often, you know, we've all been young men. Some of, some of you guys here are still young men. Um, but, you know, young men will give love in order to get sex. They'll say, you know, I love you, when in reality they mean they love themselves, and what you can give them in terms of sexual favors is really what they're after. Now, conversely, you know, young women will often give sex in order to get love. And because what they really want is love and acceptance, friendship and intimacy, you know, sometimes they make bad decisions, right? I mean, we're not told here in this section, but who's to say that uh, Shechem didn't have, you know, real smooth tongue, smooth operator, tells her all the things she wants to hear. Remember, she's 13, 15, 16 at the most. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 takes us to the second section, renumeration. So the rape has occurred, and um, we see in verse 5, it says, And Jacob heard... That he had, meaning uh, Shechem, had defiled Dinah, his daughter. And he became unglued. doesn't say that, does it? doesn't say that he came unglued. It's interesting what it does say. In fact, I don't know that I could have reacted this way. Look, it says, now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob did what? He held his peace until they came. Now, guys, remember that when they're in the field tending the livestock, sometimes they don't come home for hours, maybe a day. We don't know. But he sat there and he just, he held his peace. We'll wait till the boys get home. We'll talk this over. We'll have a little family powwow. I couldn't have done that. I would have found the kid. I would have chased him down. I certainly would have had a talk with him, wink, wink, right? probably would have looked for his father, had a talk with his father. That would have been my, my first course of action. I'm looking for Hamor, and I'm telling him, hey, Hamor, you know what your, uh, your son did to my daughter? 
But there's no indication that Jacob really had any emotion or any reaction whatsoever. He waited, he held his peace until they came. Who knows, maybe he's in shock. Bless you. Maybe he's in shock. You know, maybe he doesn't know how to react. You know, guys, sometimes we can be very emotionless, right? And that's the wrong thing to be with our wives because our wives sometimes want us to show emotion. But in this case here, you know, maybe he just didn't know how to show that emotion. Maybe he just bottled it up. Maybe he just kept it inside. It says in verse 6, Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. So here we see that it's the other guy that takes the first step, right? He takes the first step. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry. Why? Because someone's been in the kitchen with Dinah, right? goes on to say, because he had done a disgraceful thing. And that's exactly what it was. It was extremely disgraceful. And it says, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to have been done. Now, notice something in verse 7, the mention of Israel. Not as a person. Jacob was named Jacob, and then he was renamed Israel, right? You guys remember that? One who fights victoriously with God. But for the first time, Israel's mentioned as a nation. The first time that Israel's mentioned as a nation is here. And yet, they're not a nation as of yet. They are only a nation in terms of a group of people that are barely beginning to form. So here the term that referred to the nation of Israel was referring to the people rather than the land, not the property of Israel, not the land of Israel, but the people of Israel. Those that have a special covenant relationship with God because of God's relationship with Jacob. But it's a disgraceful thing. And as far as the laws of Israel will be concerned, a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to have been done. Now, in that time, it was customary in those days for the entire family to get together and approve of any marriage. Usually the dads would get together and they'd say, hey, I have a son. He's handsome. Uh, he's hardworking. He's got a good head on his shoulders. And uh, you have a, a beautiful young daughter, diligent you know, typical Proverbs 31 woman in the making, right? Let's, let's sign a deal right now. Okay, we're talking about arranged marriages. Now, the kids could be toddlers, so I don't know how hardworking a toddler can be. I mean, they get themselves in all kinds of messes, but, you know, um, we call that being busy, right? But I don't know that that's, you know, what a toddler would, would do here. I mean, if, uh, you know, you got a son or a daughter, you know, let's strike a deal. You know, they're, they're kids. They're two years old, three years old. They would arrange these marriages, so before the kids really know each other or even know what marriage is, they're, they're engaged, so to speak. Then it's approved by the entire family. So it's a family affair. It's a family contract. It's a family deal. And you might be thinking, no way. That's, that's extremely weird. I, I wouldn't have it that way. How many of you guys here would want to arrange marriage? You know? Now, hear me out on this one, okay? I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. So those in that family are eventually going to be your future in-laws, okay? They're going to be part of your family, your future forever in some kind of relationship. So 
you're going to want to make sure that that relationship is a good one, right? So in fact, if, if I was to say, if I would say if somebody in your family has a constant doubt about the person that you say you want to marry, you should probably pay attention. You should probably listen. You should probably take heed to what they're saying, especially if they have your best interests at heart. The Bible says, in the multitude of counselors, their safety, Proverbs eleven fourteen. So these marriages were arranged. But here, in this particular part of Scripture, we've got an emergency situation going on. There's no time for arranged marriages. There's no time for any of that. There's been a rape. The fathers get together, the sons come in, and there still has to be an approval process. You know, there was a, a young American missionary couple... Um, They went to India for the first time, and uh, they were newly married. They didn't have any kids yet. They went over there to minister uh, in India, and they looked at this. And these Indians looked at this young couple, and they said, How long have you known each other, and how long have you been married? And the young couple told them their story, and then they shared with the young couple their stories that in their country, it wasn't like our country here in the United States, where a young man dates a young woman and then asks her to marry. And they said, oh, there are still arranged marriages here in our country. And the husband missionary said, excuse me? They said, oh, yes, I got married because her parents and my parents got together. They prayed about it before the Lord, and they believed it was the Lord's will, and we got married. Now, the young missionary couple just thought that sounded so foreign to them. It honestly sounded unappealing and backwards. And as the husband started expressing his concern with, his, with that custom, one of the Indian brothers said, Now, wait a minute, brother. I, I don't have an Indian accent, so I can't really do it. But uh, as you can remember, um, he goes, now wait, a, now, wait a minute, brother. And he said, I'll have you know that our divorce rate is minuscule compared to your divorce rate because, you see, we learned early on that it's commitment. We have already been committed by our parents to each other. We learn that commitment comes first and feelings come later. You do it backwards. You base everything on how you feel and hope that you still feel good over time. And hopefully learn a commitment as time goes on. We've already learned the commitment by the time we approach the marriage altar. Interesting story, isn't it? So... There's an emergency here. There's no time for arranged marriages. There's no time for any of that. So look at, uh, look at verse 8. Let's go on with the story here. But Hamar spoke with them saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages, plural, with us. Give your daughters to us, plural, and take our daughters to yourselves. This guy must have had a lot of sons because there, there's a lot of marriages being arranged here, right? Now, I have to say that as far as Hamar and Shechem are concerned, they're pretty honorable. I mean, they they are taking every step of manageable to make sure that this is done right. You know, Shechem, you know, he did Shechem didn't have um he wasn't at home saying, I don't know what to do. Uh I'm not sure what I'm gonna end up doing myself. I just I, I just don't know what I mean he wasn't sitting there twiddling his thumbs, okay? He wasn't a wimp. He stepped up to the plate. He admitted what he had done. And he says, hey, I'm going to take some responsibility for what I've done. And then he gets his father involved. 
So he's taken some actionable steps. You know, the text kind of indicates that this was done in, in rapid order. And for pagans, you have to admit, this is pretty honorable. How many of you guys remember uh, Ross Perot? You guys remember him back in the presidential elections of 1992-96? What's that? Yes. <laughs> um, he's an interesting character. I didn't vote for him or anything like that, but uh, I was fascinated with him because I remember on one occasion he was talking to some people about morality, and uh, he was very, very blunt. Um, not like Donald Trump is today, but I mean, you know, had a really good head on his shoulders, really blunt, really, you know, said what he meant and meant what he said. And in his Texas accent, he said, now, see, I want to say something to you young men. If you get a young woman pregnant and you don't take responsibility for her, I want you to know you are scum of the earth. And I thought, man, that was cool. Here he is telling people, you know, on national television that guys who get girls pregnant and don't take responsibility are scum of the earth. I thought that was pretty cool. And here, Hamor and Shechem are taking responsibility for their actions. And in fact, the deal is, let's make marriages, daughters, sons, all of us just living, living happily ever after. Okay? Now look at verse 10. So, you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it. Acquire possessions for yourself in it. In other words, settle down here. Make yourself comfortable. Make yourself at home with us. Now, I want to jog your memory a little bit. This is one of Satan's first attempts to pollute the royal line. Do you know what I mean by that? You guys, you know, okay. Now, remember back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the promise that Satan the serpent would come and bruise the heel of the Messiah, but the Messiah would bruise his head or crush his head. And so God promised a lineage, and eventually someone would be born into that lineage. And it would be the Messiah who would crush the domain of Satan. And ever since that promise, Satan has been, has been trying to figure out a way to counteract this act of God. Okay? Uh, with defensive warfare, trying to kill off uh, you know, people in the messianic lineage. So he's been trying to really uh, mess this up. For instance, so as soon as that promise was given, Cain kills his brother, Abel induced by Satan to do so in an attempt to destroy all the royal line. God raises up Seth as a royal line, but as the line grows and populates, the whole earth becomes corrupt. So then God has to judge the entire world, and everybody on earth is destroyed except for Noah and his family because the royal messianic seed is incorporated into those eight people that survived. That warfare continues, and I believe we see a little bit of a hint of it here. It's an attempt to say, hey, look, don't be separated. Don't be different. Come and join us. We'll just marry our kids into each other's families. We'll live happily ever after. There'll, there'll be no difference. It's no different than that uh, small voice that Satan comes to you at and says, hey, it doesn't really matter. You know, how many kids today, you know, would keep themselves out of trouble if they didn't try to, you know, please their friends or to look like their friends, to act like their friends or even dress like their friends? Know what I mean? So there's a principle that's important here and throughout Scripture in our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, he's, uh, he's using a farming analogy, and a farmer 
who wants a plow pulled on his land would put animals into a yoke. You guys know what a yoke is? Okay. He would at least have two animals, if not more, pulling together, right? Now, the farmer would never put two animals that aren't aligned together um, or have the same temperament. Do you understand what I mean by that? He'd find two animals that were alike uh, in size and strength and temperament um, to do the work that he was looking for those animals to do. You'd never have a Clydesdale horse and a miniature donkey tied together or aligned together, right? It just wouldn't work. They'd be plowing in a circle all day long. It looked like a crop, a crop circle. So the farmer wants them to go in the same direction for the same length of time to do the same kind of work, so he picks equally yoked animals. And likewise, God does the same thing. He wants us to be equally yoked, and he wants us to be yoked with believers and not unbelievers. Now, in this context, when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 6, he is referring to the false teachers at Corinth and that some of the believers were aligning themselves with. However, the broader principle that applies to many areas of our life is whether you get married to an unbeliever, start a business, so on and so forth. And so the, the principle is still the same. Now, God's not going to stop you if you want to go and you want to start a business or you want to marry someone that's not a believer. Okay? He's... He could stop you, but he's not. He's not going to infringe on your free will. But know that there will be heartbreak. There's going to be consequences. It's going to be rough. And by us being unequally yoked, we will not be in a position to really follow our master, right? So we see that the, uh, the principle here is violated. Now in verse 11, now watch this. The young man's going to talk to his potential father-in-law and his sons. He says, then Shechem, said to, then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. So he kind of sounds honorable here, right? Ask me ever so much dowry. And in Hebrew, mohar is the word there, dowry. I'll explain that in just a minute here. He says, ask me ever so much dowry and gift. Now, this could be something different from the dowry. Um, it could be a personal gift that's given to Dinah herself, um, the bride. We don't really know. And goes on and says, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. So this guy is looking to just, I mean, he will do whatever it takes, and he will pay whatever price it is for Dinah. Now, a dowry was a chunk of money given to the father of the bride by the family of the groom. It was remuneration. Why? Was it to buy her? No, it wasn't to buy her. It had nothing to do with paying for her, but to, to compensate him for the loss of help. All this time we've been talking about the farmer. We've been talking you know, um, about uh, being unequally yoked. And the, the reason for that is because uh, when you had kids they were part of the workforce on the farm, okay? So this is remuneration. They have to, uh, let's see here, lost my train of thought. Okay, so now he says, you name the price. Why, it says, because, uh, because the law, oh, sorry guys, I lost my train of thought here. Oh, okay. 
Because before the law of Moses in ancient cultures, if there was any premarital intercourse, uh, a dowry had to be presented to legitimize the union. Otherwise, it was not considered uh, legitimate. And the father of the bride could ask any price that he wanted. Okay, So he could jack up that price as, as much as he wanted. But later on, the law of Moses in Exodus chapter 20 and on was instituted, and it's going to be put in place. And then later on, we see in uh, Deuteronomy 22.9, there's going to be a financial cap that's put on this of up to 50 shekels because what was happening is that people were abusing this um, and people were extorting the fathers of the bride. So rape, remuneration, and now we move into retaliation. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So look at verse 13. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully. Notice how these boys are conducting themselves. It says that they are that they spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. Where did they learn how to do this? Like father, like son, right? That apple doesn't fall too far from the tree here. Now, the Hivites are negotiating in good faith. You know, they're open, they're honest negotiations. Not the sons of Jacob. There is a motive here. There is something brewing beneath the surface. And it says, they spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. Now, Jacob is going to reap what he's sown in terms of his deceit. Because now we see his boys taking after good, taking after good old dad. It's a good lesson that kids are, are watching us, aren't they? Our moves, our actions, everything we say. They're like parrots when they're little kids, right? You say something, all of a sudden they start repeating the same thing you just said. In this case here, these guys uh, are repeating exactly what good old dad did. Now, and they said to him, and they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. Now, I'm sure when he heard that word, he thought, uh-oh, here it comes. For that would be a reproach to us. Now, circumcision was put into place in the patriarchal era of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it's not foreign to other cultures. Other cultures you know, also did practice circumcision, especially when there was going to be a marriage involved uh, or that there was going to be a marriage possible. So it wasn't foreign to them, but this wasn't a very appealing thing. It's kind of like if you're dating, you know, a young gal and, you know, the family says, um, you know, we want you to, uh, to get circumcised. It's going to make you think twice, isn't it? Look at verse 15. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. We'll become one. We'll be able to sing Kumbaya together, right? We'll be able to like swing back and forth. Everything's going to be honky dory. It says, but if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and be gone. So they know they've got this guy exactly where they want him, right? They know that they've seen emotionally that this, you know, he really, he, he's really fallen for her. 
somewhere along the way, we don't know how long this is, but somewhere along the way, this guy has really fallen for Dinah. Okay? He's willing to do anything. And uh, Jacob's sons know this. They're extremely smart in a bad way, like their dad. Look at verse 18. Very interesting here. And their words pleased Hamar and Shechem, Hamar's son. And so the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And in verse 20, And Hamar and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city. Why did the gate? Because that's where all the elders of the city are, right? And the men who make all the decisions hang out there. You guys remember the story of Lot? Where did Lot go? Went to the gate of the city, right? Went to the power brokers, the guys who make all the decisions. So they went, he went to the gate and he spoke with the men of their city saying, now let's stop here for a second. What's going on here, guys, is that now these two guys have to go and they've got to sell this idea to the whole town. Put yourselves in their sandals. I mean, you, you know, you're going to go to your friends. You're going to go to all the power brokers in the city and say, hey, listen, fellas of Shechem, um, my good old buddies, my good old pals, uh, we all got to get circumcised for the good of the city. Who's going to go for that? It's like, uh-uh, that ain't going to happen, right? So they're, they're sitting there trying to sell this whole concept of, you know, it doesn't tell us how many guys were in the city, but even if it's five guys or ten guys, I mean, I don't know that I would be able to convince anybody to do this, right? So they've got to sell this idea to the men of the city, and so they begin with the elders. Why do you think they begin with the elders, aside from the fact that they're the power brokers? Because hopefully the younger men will listen. The younger men, those, their, their dads sit on the council, right? So they're going to do what their dad tells them to do. So they figured, hey, you know what? It's a typical business strategy. Let's go top down and, and everyone else will follow. Now, let's watch how they sell it. Look at verse 21. These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. This is a typical politician move here, isn't it? Bring up the economy. Bring up, this is going to be better for everybody. Everybody's going to make money. Doesn't mention anything about Obamacare. Sorry. Sorry, I had to get that one in. It says, for indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people. If every male among us, every male among us is circumcised and they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. Okay. Hamar and Shechem haven't been totally honest with Jacob and the sons, have they? They didn't tell them, hey, you know what? This is a done deal. We've got to go sell it now. They never said that. They made it sound like, hey, this is, this is not a big deal. We'll make it happen, whatever. So I want to go back to verse 10 for a second and notice what he says to Jacob. He says, so you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell in it and trade in it. 
and acquire possessions for yourselves. Okay, so he's trying to uh, appeal to Jacob's greediness. Okay, Jacob does. You guys remember Jacob doesn't need anything. He is extremely wealthy, right? But he's saying this would be an economic benefit for you if you do this. You'll be blessed and you'll and you'll prosper materialistically if you do this thing. But when Hamar has to sell to his people, he says in verse 23, will not their livestock, their property and every animal of theirs be ours? Kind of sounds like our president, right? Just kind of just redistributing all the wealth. He goes, only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. So he has to sell this as an economic opportunity. And uh, he's like, I know this is going to hurt guys, but this is all for the better good. Uh, we're all going to make out and uh, you're all going to get rich. Okay, that's, that's how he's selling this. Now, again, as we've talked about, I'm sure the elders kind of looked at him and said, uh, these guys have to be outside of their right mind. They just have to be absolutely crazy. But here's the thing. They actually went along with this. And it's because it appealed to their greed. The Hivites saw that this was an opportunity to absorb Jacob, his sons, his family into their camp because he was extremely wealthy. We don't know the wealth conditions of the Hivites, but you know they saw, they saw Jacob coming. Now look at uh, verse 24. And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now here's the reality of what's happening. Jacob's sons are intentionally deceiving them with the intent to incapacitate them. Okay? Verse 13 says, The sons of Jacob answered and spoke deceitfully. In other words, these guys get circumcised, they will be incapacitated. So you remember we talked about that there was something going on underneath. There was a motive. Well, here it is. Their motive was to incapacitate them. That they wouldn't be fast on their feet. They would be in pain. They won't be able to move. It, it will give them military advantage and that they could kill them all. This is what's going on here. They had real, no true intent of these men being circumcised. And that's the whole idea of it. You can imagine immediately after being circumcised how the first few days are extremely painful and it would incapacitate them. And here's what's mystifying. Jacob, during this whole time, is just completely passive. You don't hear him say anything. He's not telling his boys anything. He's not correcting them. It's just, he's just sitting there. He's just passive. He doesn't step up. He never said anything to Hamar. You could have said, hey, you know what? Um, you know, we, we need to talk. Never said anything there. So we see that they talk to the men of the city, and Jacob just kind of sits back. He watches it all happening, just happen, just completely passive. Now, guys, it's a mistake to be a passive parent and not to be an active parent in your kids' lives. Passive parent will ruin a child. A parent has to stand up for what's right and wrong and live with conviction and then pass those on to their child. Whether he or she agrees with it or not, it's still our responsibility to pass those on to our kids. Something 
to give them a benchmark, something to relate back to them as far as a standard of belief. Anyone who's passive towards their kids and are not actively engaged with them will ruin them. Listen to Proverbs 22.6. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and then when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, as you guys probably know, this doesn't mean that if you train up a child in the way that they go, that they're going to always turn out to be good kids, right? But at least you're giving them every opportunity to be a, a good kid and a good citizen. Now look at verse 25. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain, that is after their, after their circumcision, that the two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city. And he killed all the males. All the males, not one was left. And they killed Hamar and Shechem, his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. Now, you should know that Dinah and these two boys, Simeon and Levi, were sons of Jacob through the same mother, Leah. She was the unloved woman, the unloved wife. I mean, how, I mean, you know, I was reading that and, um, you know, you guys have been through the series and you knew, you know, the story of Leah, right? I can't imagine going through life knowing that my spouse never loved me and that I was classified as the unloved husband, you know. But here we see that, uh, you know, she was the unloved wife. Rachel was the one that Jacob loved. So you can imagine, you know, that uh, all the favoritism that was going on in that family. You know, we talked about it last week, but, you know, here Leah was the, the older one, but she was the less pretty and less appealing. So these two boys were full brothers, and felt more of a connection, obviously, than the rest of Jacob's brothers or her half-brothers. However, Reuben, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun were also full brothers, having Jacob and Leah as mom and dad. But you notice that they, the scriptures didn't tell us that they acted the same way. They didn't react the same way. So why did Simeon and Levi react so violently? Why did they act so aggressively? What do you guys think? I don't know. Maybe in their mind, they thought, Dad's not going to do anything. Dad's just going to sit there. He's just going to watch it all happen. You know, we've got to do something. We've got to stand in. We, we, we've, got to, we've got to defend our little sister's honor. Vigilantes. Now, let's fast forward ahead in the story. Let's take a sneak peek at Jacob on his deathbed. He's got his 12 sons. They're gathered around him. And in Genesis 49, we see that Jacob calls each of his boys by name. And he's going to tell them something extremely prophetic about them and their, their, uh, their life and, and things and future things that are going to happen. It's going to be a, a pretty fascinating study when you guys get to uh, chapter 49, but Chapter 49, verses 5 through 8, you could turn to it or, or I can just read it to you. In verse 5, it says, he, Jacob, gets to these two boys. He says, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. 
Let not my honor be united to their assembly, for in their anger they slew a man. And it's referring to the incident that we're talking about here. And in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. So it's like the blessing, he has just kind of completely stripped off of them. He's taken it off of them, and he's given it to Judah, through whom the Messiah will know, will come, right? The lion, the tribe of Judah. And goes on to say, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. The prediction is these two, Simeon and Levar, are going to be scattered. Okay? So here you got your dad. He's dying on his deathbed. And you think that, hey, you know, you've been the best son. You know, you've done everything. And these guys are getting rebuked. And this is harsh because once the dad, once Jacob dies, you know, they're stuck with this, right? Can you imagine how they're feeling? So it's interesting as Levi, for example, was scattered throughout Israel, though, he had no land of his own. His tribe had no land. But, but, but here's why they were scattered. You guys ready for this? They became what? They became the priests, right? They became the priests. They had no land allotment of their own. They had no physical inheritance. But because God said, I, the Lord your God, am your inheritance... This is what he promised them. This is what he gave them. We see that in Deuteronomy and also in the book of Numbers. So they were scattered, but because God in his grace and his mercy turned the worst tribe into the priesthood. Now, that's what, guys do, that's what God does with us, doesn't it? He takes a bunch of vile, filthy sinners. Um, he turns us into a kingdom of priests, Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9. A kingdom of of priests, a royal generation, and in this royal priesthood, there are ex drug addicts, ex alcoholics, ex prostitutes, saved for the glory of God and made a kingdom of priests. What style, what flair God has, right? It's amazing the mercy and grace that He shows us as well as Levi and, uh, and his brother. So, uh, so turn back to verse 26. So in verse 26 of our chapter, we'll finish it out here. It says, And they killed Hamar and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city. So the two boys did the killing, I guess, but the rest of the boys were very consensual to this. They were complicit. They plundered the town. They didn't, it doesn't say that they were the first uh, tip of the sword, right? but they were going to get uh, their part of it. It says, because their sister had been defiled, they took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field. Now, this is going to help you understand a law that was mystified for a long time, and and people have a hard time understanding this. I know that I've had a hard time understanding this. Um, And as time goes on, you know, we'll, we get an understanding of something in the law of Moses after it gets inaugurated called um, the Lex Talionis. Okay? The Lex Talionis goes like this. It's the law of retribution, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And some people read that and they suppose 
God is extremely vengeful. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Why would I even want to serve a God like that? Why would I even want to have a relationship with a God like that, right? So to, so to understand it, the Lex Talionis was put into place to limit vengeance, okay? An eye for an eye, because you see, it's human nature as we read here that if you take one of my eyes, I'm going to take both of your eyes. You hit me in the face and I'm going to take out your teeth, your uppers and your lowers, right? So the law here is um, to match the crime that was committed. It was so that there was no going beyond what was done. You guys understand? Okay. You know, Jesus took it a step further in Matthew 5, 38, 39. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. So the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth was to limit vengeance so that the punishment would be fitting to the crime because of this tendency that we see here uh, in our human nature. They took the sheep, the oxen, they killed all the guys. They took and they plundered the city. Now, the rape of Dinah is not, I mean, we, we don't condone that at all, do we? But what they did was extremely bad because they went above and beyond what they probably should have, right? Now, granted, they were probably angry, but uh, there was probably a lot more going on here than, uh, than what's being said. Look at verse 29. It says, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, they took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi. Now, think about this during this whole account. You guys ever recall Jacob saying anything? After all this, it's kind of like he just woke up out of his days and he says, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. You get the picture? This guy's got a big eye complex. It's me, 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 I, I, I. I mean, this guy, it's all about me. What about me? What's going to happen to me, right? This is the first time he wakes up. Verse 31, but they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Now, Jacob is a complete enigma to me. He never gets angry for the rape of his daughter. He doesn't rebuke Shechem or Hamar, but he does rebuke his sons. But notice, he doesn't rebuke them for the massacre. What's he rebuking them for? He doesn't rebuke them for even abusing the right of circumcision. He doesn't rebuke them for breach of contract. He rebukes them because they gave him what? A bad reputation. That's the only thing he cares about. That's the only thing that you worry about. And, he's, and it says, he says nothing about his daughter. He says nothing about the murder. He says nothing about the massacre, about the abuse of circumcision, as we said. He just says, eh, you know what? I'm really ticked off at you guys because you made me obnoxious. I love that. <laughs> You made me obnoxious. I'm not sure how they made him obnoxious. I mean, he's been pretty obnoxious throughout this whole last couple of chapters. But uh, 
they're not going to like me, and my, tape, my reputation has been muddied. Okay? Now, I'm going to close with this. You know, guys, I, I want to be sensitive, and I want, I want us to kind of, uh, you know, think this through. If you're allowing your, your little dinas to run around the neighbor with all the Shechems that are running around in town, you know, check, you know, these Shechems that are checking out all the chicks and checking out all the girls, right? You know, don't be surprised if they start adopting their values and becoming like them. If you put your children in pagan environments, what's going to happen? They become, okay? They start to assimilate, all right? Jacob led his family into pagan environments, into pagan towns. He allowed his kids to grow up in morally corrupt places. But worse, he was extremely passive. He was permissive, and he was a very uninvolved parent. And like Jacob, what will happen is you'll reach a point that you'll say to your kids, you're troubling me. You know, you're a pain in my rear end. You're bothering me. You're making me obnoxious by the things that you say or you do or how you dress or the friends that you keep. But if you allow your kids to go to the wrong places, do the wrong things that you know in your heart you should be keeping them from, and if you don't step in and counteract it, you're hurting them. Guys, the, 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 the environments today are blatantly, overtly sexual in this world. There's a lot of peer pressure that uh, our kids have to face. And without your godly parental pressure to counteract that worldly pressure, that, that worldly pressure they're going to collapse. Something's going to give. The thresher a nuclear submarine in 1963 that was making an attempt to go under the polar ice cap toward the North Pole, it submerged too deep. There was too much water pressure, and the submarine imploded. The thick metal skin hole of the submarine imploded because the pressure was just too great. And yet here's the ironic thing. There's a tiny little fish that live at the same depth that don't implode, and the secret is the pressure that is at the depth in the fish is counteracted by the equal pressure from the inside going out. So you got this little tiny fish, equal pressure, able to survive at the same depth, but yet you've got this monstrosity of a submarine that just implodes. They're pressurized fish. So one pressure counteracts the other pressure. If our children don't have a good, solid, godly home environment, that is, pressure monitored by us as parents, then the peer pressure on the outside is going to cause them to fold. They're going to implode. Jacob was flawed. But you know what? So was Isaac. Come to think of it, Abraham was, was flawed just like, like Jacob was, right? But guys, I mean, who isn't flawed? I mean, I'm flawed. That's my wife. I'm flawed. And as... Jacob was flawed. You know, we've got to give him at least this, okay? That deep within his heart, underneath all of that conniving, all of the double-crossing, all the lying, there was this deep seed of a desire for spiritual things. He went about it the wrong way. He lied, he cheated, so on and so forth. But he had that deep desire to serve the Lord. You guys, many of you guys here are involved in ministry. Many of you guys here have a deep-seated desire to serve the Lord. Get involved. 
Doesn't matter how bad you are, how bad you think you are, how bad you think God thinks you are, but get involved, okay? The story doesn't just end with murder, deceit, and rape. You know, in chapter 35, you guys will get to it next week, Jacob gets revived, and he wants his sons, his family to get, you know, revived, and he goes back to Bethel and begins to call on the name of the Lord. He goes back to building an altar and worshiping and and tries to influence his family with the same spiritual value system as he takes leadership of his home. It's never too late to take leadership in our homes, right? It's never too late to read with our wives. It's never too late to sit with our kids and read and pray. It's never too late to teach them. They may not appreciate it at first, but it doesn't really matter. It's like we talked about last week. You know, you're not down on that mat until God puts you down on that mat, right? You're not out for the count yet. So, yeah, he's flawed, but, you know, I'm glad that the scriptures talk about um, these guys, heroes of the faith, because I look at them and I go, man, you know what? If, if Jacob can do it, so can I, you know? And that's what I want to leave with you guys with is uh, as we continue in our walks, Don't allow Satan to sit there and whisper in your ear and tell you, you know what, you're done. You're never done. As long as there's breath in our our lungs, we're going to continue to fight, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again, Father, for just the story of Jacob, Lord. Father, for the story of compromise, Lord, and, and just passivity. We ask you, Father, that, Lord, if those things you find in our hearts, that you would just remove them, Lord, and that you would just... Remove those uh, barriers that we have to being those uh, men and those godly men that you, you want us to be, Lord, and require of us, Lord. Father, I lift up these men to you, Father, that you would just bless them. Father, bless their hands. Every place they walk, Lord, may you just walk before them. May you have your hand upon their families, Lord. And Father, as we uh, have seen this account, Lord, we know that it was gruesome and awful, Lord, but there's a reason for it, Lord. Thank you for teaching us about compromise, Lord. We ask that, Lord, we would just be sweet-smelling aromas to you, Lord. We love you. We praise you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.